Welcome to the Free Range Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Livermore. This episode is sponsored by the program on law, communities, and the environment at the University of Virginia School of Law. With me today is Frances Moore, a professor of environmental science and policy at UC Davis. Her work focuses on climate economics, and she was the lead author of a recent paper in Nature that examined an important set of feedbacks between politics and the climate system. Hi, Fran. Thanks for joining me today. Thanks so much for having me. So let's talk about this super interesting new paper that you published. Here's a, uh, here's a great line from the beginning of it. I'll just, I'll just read it out. And the quote is, climate policy and greenhouse gas emissions arise endogenously from the coupled interaction of the climate, social, political, and energy systems. Uh, so there's a lot of important stuff in there. Uh, maybe uh, you could help uh, unpack it a little bit for our listeners. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of uh, long words in there, um, but I think you have picked out like pretty much the key uh, sentence kind of describing what's new uh, in this paper and what, what we're trying to do. And the, you know, kind of recognizing that existing modeling by and large in the climate space kind of takes emissions as a given, right? So we're either asking you know, what will the climate system do given, you know, this emissions pathway or this other emissions pathway, right? Or we're, we're taking these emissions and we're saying, you know, give me the like lowest cost energy mix that, you know, meets this, this some emissions constraint, right? That can get us to this, like, say, two degrees kind of consistent pathway. Uh, and what what both of those approaches do is they they kind of, they just say like, okay, well, this is emissions X or it's emissions Y. And what we're trying to do here is we're actually trying to model the determinants of those emissions pathways. And so, you know, this is, you know, this is a key question and what climate change is going to look like over the 21st century is what happens to emissions. And right now, by and large, we kind of don't put probabilities over those emissions because mostly we we don't incorporate them into our models. Um, and so that's what this paper is trying to do. So when it says endogenously, it means like as part of our model, like we don't impose emissions at, from outside of the model. Instead, what we do is we we model the formation of policy and emissions, um, and that then links into the climate system, and then there are feedbacks uh, um, to more policy and, and changes in emissions and so on as part of the model. Um, and so that's kind of what the key difference is in this paper compared to kind of um, like what most of the literature does. Yeah, great. And so one thing that is, you know, I've always found interesting about the the research in this area is there's kind of a split between two broad ways of modeling kind of the climate economy energy systems. And there's one that is very prevalent in, you know, like the IPCC process and amongst climate scientists. And that's mm -hmm. where um, kind of what you were saying is let's look at, you know, what happens to the to the world on a particular emissions pathways. And, mm -hmm. you know, there's different kind of scenarios. Um, and that's kind of about modeling how the climate system responds to, um, to what we're doing um, in terms of emissions. Or as you said, you know, like let, what, what energy mix is consistent with different emissions pathways. And that's kind of the, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the folks that put out the regular assessment reports, the big scientific process. Um, and there's a whole world of researchers and modelers who kind of feed their work into that. And then there's another world, which is the, which is the economist's mm -hmm. way of doing climate mm -hmm. modeling. And that's like your William Nordhaus, who won a Nobel Prize in economics a few years ago for his work developing the, the, the first big economy climate model. And um, these are the models that feed into a different important policy mm -hmm. process, right? This is the social cost of carbon that's uh, developed by the U.S. government that uh, is used to price the value of emissions reductions uh, when the federal government um, in some states now use this number two when uh, they're evaluating policy using cost-benefit analysis. So, so um, how does the, uh, the model that you've developed fit into these you know, two broad categories of the kind of IPCC versus SCC approach to uh, mm -hmm. doing modeling of climate change? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Um, and so I've done work previously using the kind of um, the SCC type models, like, um, you know, some of my work uses versions of DICE and some of the other, which is the Bill Nordhaus model, um, and some other models that also do that. Um, this 
is distinct, I think, from both of those approaches. Um, it is similar to the um, kind of ec- economist world in that, um, you know, in the economist world, you have emissions arise to some extent endogenously because policy enters into the model as a control variable, right? So one of the one of the reasons economists design, you know, and use the models they do uh, is because they ask this question about what does optimal climate policy look like? Um, and using these models where you're looking both at the cost of emissions reduction and the benefits in terms of reduced climate change damages, you can have this objective function that then you, you know, you you maximize that, that the welfare by con- controlling emissions at a certain rate over time. And that's what that's what DICE does. Um, we are distinct from that in that we are not optimizing anything. So although kind of cost of mitigation enter into the model, we'd have, we have no real, there's no kind of centralized, you know, um, like so- social planner the way there is in the DICE model who kind of is this like omnipotent person who can just like control the carbon price, uh, every p- the global carbon price every period, which we kind of know doesn't exist. So what we're trying to do is our representation of how policy arises is a kind of more, more grounded than that. And because of that, it's like certainly not non-optimal. Um, and so these carbon prices that come out of it are not necessarily uh, optimal in any way, um, but they're just kind of um, coming through what we think, how we think, say, political processes work, basically. Yeah, great. And I think that, you know, one way that I think of the, the work that you've, you've, you've done here and, and published and the research behind it is in some sense, is, as you said, it's a third approach or it's at the intersection of these two different um, uh, approaches, because you, as you note, just to reiterate, the the Nordhaus and the economic kind of approach to doing this modeling is an optimization uh, modeling, right? What's the ideal carbon price? Um, kind of question is what they're asking, and the IPCC world is doing a more predictive enterprise. What happens if we take this emissions pathway or that emissions pathway. And in some sense, it's really interesting what you've accomplished here, which is to say kind of a fully predictive model in the sense that what's the most likely kind of suite of policies that we'll see in light of what we know about how policy is made, or at least how much of that we can capture in our models. Um, And then how do those policies interact with emissions pathways? And then, uh, and this is an important move in the paper, how do the emissions pathways then interact with the climate system to feed back into the political processes mm-hmm. to generate different policies that then affect emissions and so on. And, and so it's really a quite a, quite a complete um, way of, of making predictions about what our climate future looks like. It's, it's really uh, fun and interesting in that way. So maybe um, we could talk a little bit about that, that feedback effect that, that you now have been able to capture in your model where um, maybe just taking a step back, feedbacks in the climate system we all know about. This is where when you um, add carbon into the atmosphere, um, uh, that could heat up, you know, that will heat up the planet, which then could do things like melt permafrost, which then releases methane, which heats up the planet. And, you know, that's a positive feedback effect. But one of the feedbacks that you're interested in is the feedback where effects in the climate system then introduce changes into the uh, political system. So, so mm-hmm. what are some uh, what are some of those feedbacks um, that you're that you're interested in? Yeah. So, um, uh, just to respond to to some of the things uh, you said there. So, um, I think um, certainly it's uh, comprehensive in its ambition. I would say this, right, this, right, right, this right. model. Um, the question of whether or not we are kind of it's also highly highly stylized, and yeah. so I think that that because it's the ambition is to be comprehensive. You know, there's you know. There, there are pieces missing and that people approaching this, this problem from different areas might kind of object to some of the simplifications we have to make. And there's always kind of more we can do on that space. Um, I think it's also worth just spending a minute on um, why this is something we want to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is not necessarily always obvious. Um, and so I think for me, you know, this question of like, 
putting probabilities over different emission scenarios is really important if you approach the problem as an adaptation planner, right? Mm -hmm. And but the fact that right now we essentially don't do that at all and we say, you know, there's no way we can tell someone about whether RCP 8.5, a very high emission scenario, is less likely or more likely than RCP 4.5 or RCP 2.6. Like, I, I think that's just very impractical for, you know, people trying to plan for what climate change impacts are going to look like over the next 50 years. And I think we kind of want to do a better job of that. And if you do, then you have to start saying something about what emissions trajectories are more or less likely. And this is, there are other ways of doing it, um, but this is kind of one way of doing it. Mm -hmm. um, but then to, yes, to get at your question, so what we're trying to do here, the reason we have a lot of feedback processes is to kind of respect the fact that there is uh, a lot of potential non-linearities um, in the system and that we can represent them in terms of the these feedback processes that lead to when you couple together a lot of different feedback, you can get quite complex kind of emergent dynamics out of a model. Um, and so we really paid attention to evidence for these different types of feedbacks when we were looking into the relevant literatures. And we tried to capture kind of as many um, as we possibly could in designing the model so that although it's highly abstract and stylized, um, it hopefully represents a lot of some of these key processes that are going to um, kind of affect the dynamics of these trajectories over time. And so some of the examples, um, you talked, you mentioned the feedback from the climate system kind of back into the social system. And so mm -hmm. this is a overarching feedback that goes across the whole model and we call it the cognition feedback. And so this is the idea that, well, you know, maybe people perceive climate change um, and, you know, their perception of climate change maybe leads them, you know, and this is something we vary in the model, but maybe that perception of climate change leads them to kind of either support climate policy or undertake kind of pro-climate like individual behaviors. Um, and so that's one of the big feedbacks that we allow for. And then we allow for various types of like imperfect cognition um, as supported by the like um, that that piece of the psychology literature. There are other important feedbacks some of your listeners may be familiar with, like in the in the energy system, for example, the feedbacks associated with cost declines over time. So kind of new energy technologies are often very expensive, but then as you kind of deploy more of them, the costs come down, which means you deploy more of them, which means costs come down. And this is this uh, reinforcing feedback um, that's quite well documented in the kind of energy systems literature. And so like that's one of the feedbacks we have. Um, there's about, I think altogether about seven or eight of these uh, different types of feedbacks. Yeah, this, um, you know, there's a lot of interesting stuff there. And, and maybe at some point, if we have time, we can get back to, mm -hmm. I think there's a kind of a fun and interesting philosophical question actually at the heart of your approach about kind of, uh, uh, you know, modeling human behavior in this, in this causal way and, and making predictions. That is pretty interesting. Mm -hmm. uh, actually, deep kind of mm -hmm. uh, uh, philosophical differences between the, the Nordhaus, the IPCC mm -hmm. and, and your approach. But, mm -hmm. but just maybe to, to stay with the, in, in the weeds of the model for a second before we zoom way out. So yeah, so I, I took a look at, I mean, just the, the different feedback processes that struck me in the, in the paper were, you know, this notion of social conformity, right? The idea that um, if, if a bunch of people get together and, um, you know, start really caring about um, climate change and, and showing that, um, that, and there's a norm that develops around um, addressing climate change, that that could have potential f uh, tipping point effects. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, we have experience with that maybe with smoking where mm -hmm. um, a norm develops around, say, smoking indoors and then, you know, um, there's kind of a tipping point where it used to be if you were didn't let people smoke in your apartment, you were kind of a big jerk. And now it's pretty strange if someone lights up in your house uh, without asking. Um, and you noted the, the, the climate change perception, right, is that as we start to see climate change happening in our environment, then, um, you know, that might lead people to care more about climate change, recognize it. Um, political interest is another one that you noted. Um, the one that as a as a law professor I, 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 I it struck me interesting as the expressive force of law feedback. Um, we don't, I don't normally see that in scientific papers, so maybe that's something we can talk about a little bit. And then another important one is the temperature emissions feedback where mm -hmm. if if, uh, if you if you have temperature change that then leads to a reduction in economic growth, that's then going to affect emissions. So all of these are really interesting on their own and 
um, and could be, um, and we could spend a lot of time talking about them. Maybe we could talk a little bit about, um, I'm just thinking, well, well actually, why, why don't you tell me, what, what's your favorite feedback? Other than, well, well given, <laughs> given, given um, I'm talking to a law professor here, it would be really interesting to talk about this expressive force of law um, piece of it, uh, I think, um, you know, because that is, that's an example where some, well, some of the challenges we had was reading some of this literature and the law literature was some and the psychology literature to some extent and politically, uh, really importantly, the political science literature where you have documented feedback that are clearly important to the system, um, but they're very qualitative, they tend to be very qualitative um, descriptions. And so, and what we have to do in this model is, I mean, it's a computational model. So you have to kind of take that and you have to try and like turn it into into, um, functions and numbers in some way so you can like plug that idea in uh, to your modeling of the system. And certainly that expressive force of law was really kind of interesting when I kind of learned about this idea and it was clearly an important potential feedback, right? If you have signaling power from changes in the law that feeds back to public opinion in this reinforcing feedback uh, loop, then that's going to quite be quite important in changing the dynamics, potentially changing the dynamics of the system. And so we wanted to incorporate that um, uh, in a way that you know, drawing on this literature for support, but again, very qualitative literature, mostly with some some case studies, maybe. Um, but we kind of, you know, we wanted to be comprehensive in terms of the potential pathways that we were including there. Yeah, no, I think it's great. I mean, I'll kind of offer two somewhat contradictory mm-hmm. takes on that. So one is, I think it's great. I mean, and it, it is, um, you're right, that it's a very interesting potential feedback, could be important. Um, there are lots of uh, my colleagues in the legal academy who are are interested in the idea of um, this expressive force of law, or sometimes kind of think of it as like using law as a mechanism to achieve kind of cultural change. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, rather than just changing you know incentives or mm-hmm. uh, or, th- or something like that. So. Um, you know, my own personal take on this is that uh, I'm, a, I'm a bit of a I'm a bit of a skeptic. There's kind of two different takes on expressive, um, you know, the kind of ex- uh, expression in law. So one is just more kind of moral that that it's really irrespective of how the law affects people's attitudes or beliefs or preferences. You know, that the law should you know respect equality or something like mm-hmm. that like mm-hmm. um embody respect for gender equality or racial equality or something like that mm-hmm. um that would be one that's more of a kind of a moral view and then the um an alternative would be like the social scientific or the behavioral view would be you know when you have a an, uh, a judicial opinion like brown versus the board mm-hmm. or um obergefell um which was the gay uh, marriage mm-hmm. opinion then you know that that affects how people view things like racial equality or, you know, marriage equality or whatever. Um, I think there's just a big open question on how much that works, mm-hmm. <laughs> how much that's, that's real. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, as, as you might imagine, it's completely endogenous, right? So like mm-hmm. um, there's other social forces that are acting on the court and that are mm-hmm. acting on politics and are acting on culture that, it, uh, you know, those social dynamics could be leading to broader social change and leading to the judicial mm-hmm. opinions, right? Mm-hmm. And it's super hard to disentangle, I mean, basically super hard slash impossible to disentangle those. Um, you know, you'd have to imagine the experiment, <laughs> mm-hmm. right? You know, you'd have to somehow, you know, have some kind of exogenous shock uh, that led to these kinds of legal changes. Mm-hmm. And then you try to have to trace, you know, imagine, you know, again, it's like, it's just a theoretical kind of study that you would do. Um, so, yeah, so I think that there are just different views about that. Um, uh, I, I'm probably more on the on the skeptical side, on the on the behavioral side. I think on the moral side, that's a different question. Mm-hmm. Um, but on the on the behavioral side, I'm somewhat more skeptical. It's possible. It's just very hard to know. Um, that's the kind of thing. It's you almost there's almost no way to empirically know anything. So it's kind of based on people's views. Or you can do things like you can run experiments um, or surveys. Mm-hmm. I've seen mm-hmm. some of this where you. Um, kind of inform someone of a, of a hypothetical, or you just prime someone, um, mm-hmm. letting them know that there's this judicial opinion that says this, and then you do like an A-B testing kind of thing mm-hmm. where you um, expose some people to the judicial opinion and not others, and you see how that, you know, you see if that has any effect on their views. 
Um, I think the uh, out of that literature, again, it's it's a bit of a mixed mixed story. I've actually seen some work that shows that there are uh, reverse mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, effects, right? Like, um, you know, for example, like an interesting one would be, I don't actually know if this has been studied specifically, but you could do this, would be, you know, is waterboarding torture would be a question. And you could say, expose people to a hypothetical judicial opinion that says that it's yes and see what the effects are. Mm -hmm. um, but again, I just, you know, I think the, I think out of literature, what you get is, is very, very mixed. And again, sometimes even, even inverted. So like Roe v. Wade, for example, is, is yeah, kind I was of just going to say yeah. Roe v. Wade, I think is a classic example of like uh, the feedback operating in, in the opposite direction. Right. Potentially. Right. Yeah, exactly. Where it was actually pretty uncontroversial, the decision mm -hmm. at the time, and mm -hmm. then it just kind of became more and more and more controversial, not more and more and more, but it, well, it did. And then stabilized into kind of the current level. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, but I do think it's the kind of thing that's, it's, and this actually is very interesting. This gets us into models in general and how to read the results of a model like the one that you have is it's a very useful thing to have in there because it's a possible pathway. And if someone believes that the expressive force of law is a, is a real and important phenomenon, which they totally can <laughs> based on current evidence, it's just a, you know, it's just what's your model of human behavior and how it interacts with legal institutions, then, you know, they can look at, you know, in theory, you can imagine you know, you can kind of press that dial or not press that dial, mm -hmm. right? Do you think it's important? Or do you not think it's important? Or look at the model runs where, you know, where expressive force of law is a, a major factor. Mm -hmm. um, you, you've turned the dial up or look at the model runs where that's low on the, uh, uh, you know, where you've turned the dial down. And then, you know, th that can tell you something about, you know, if it's a real thing, how important it is, right? And so I think that even irrespective of, the kind of current state of affairs in terms of the empirics, there's there's value in modeling something like that. Yeah, I think that's definitely, you know, the approach we took is that, you know, we allow for this feedback and then, um, you know, it could have a value of zero uh, and it does in some runs. Um, and then, you know, just the fact that it's a feedback process, which is what we, you know, that by itself creates these empirical challenges that you were talking about mm -hmm. where everything's connected to everything else, right? So if you're looking at the real world, like how do you say what's the causal effect of the feedback versus not? Well, it's really hard, right? Because, you know, the pol the original policy itself like arises endogenously like from the society that's producing that policy, right? But then it feeds back potentially feedbacks in some way on that society. And so, um, you know, this, this modeling approach allows for a lot of like, hypotheses around what like human behavior and cognition and social interactions uh, and how they aggregate up to produce policy allows for you to put in a lot of different um, models of how that works and to kind of like look at how that affects the affects emissions. Um, and I think we don't necessarily take strong positions either way on like exactly what the magnitude of some of these feedbacks are. Um, we have, you know, but what we're trying to do is to the best we can, kind of integrate across the evidence, allowing for a lot of these interacting dynamics and say something hopefully comprehensive about what the emissions pathways look and what factors are important in driving those emissions. Right. You know, right. so if you look at this parameter, say the feedback, for example, and you decide, oh, you know what, like it, it turned out it doesn't seem that important um, after all. Well, maybe we don't need to spend a lot more of like empirical effort, you know, um, effort if we're, you know, just for if we're only interested in climate change, which obviously we're not. It's, inter it's interesting for other reasons, but we might focus our efforts on kind of other other parameters that drop out as being really important in differentiating these pathways. Right, right. Yeah, no, it's all, you know, super, super useful. Um, and, and, um, and, and kind of the purpose of, of modeling exercises like this. One of the, actually, one of the, the um, uh, outputs or conclusions, or at least tentative conclusions that you guys come to, I think that's pretty interesting, kind of had to do with uh, the effect of individual behavior. Mm -hmm. I don't think this is maybe all that surprising for at least some folks who follow this conversation closely, but it looks as though you know, basically individual behavior can matter, but um, only kind of when it leads to broad preference cascades of some kind, right? Like the, where mm -hmm. my behavior then affects someone else's behavior that then affects someone else's behavior. And then we reach a tipping point and norms change and that leads into, you know, feeds into the political system and everything else. So it's by myself, I'm not going to be able to accomplish much. And so the real question is, 
kind of how much does our individual behavior or the behavior of you know, individuals who are concerned about climate change actually affect the behavior of other people. So is, was that a fair conclusion to, to come, with, come up with? And I'm just curious about that. Yeah, that, that, that question about individual behavior, I think that was a part of, you know, we, we have a quite rich like representation of like individual behavior change in the model. And partly that reflects, you know, where some of the effort has been, I think, on the scientific side around like um, modeling kind of individual, what affects kind of individual decisions to do kind of pro-environmental behavior. There's a lot of work on that that we try and kind of incorporate in. But, you know, there's this tension, I think, and you saw, saw these debates playing out, I think, um, uh, in some of the popular kind of articles and things about you know, this focus on individual behavior change versus on some kind of collective action. And what we do here is we try and we, I think we are, we're able a little bit to kind of resolve some of those arguments at, at those debates at, at a higher level in the sense that we, we find, and this is not surprising, right? Like, um, you know, just individual behavior change, like by itself, it's like, you know, that cannot solve climate change, right? Because most of how we produce emissions is collective in, in, in it's a collective decision. Um, and so, you know, people making, making changes like are only able to do so much to actual emissions. But because we have a lot of these reinforcing feedbacks in the model that are all coupled together, it is possible to put the model into certain states where the propensity of, indiv of, of individuals that support collective climate policy to kind of make costly changes in their own behavior has a feedback uh, to their neighbors, to their social network that persuades other people of that same opinion that we should do something at the collective level to address climate change that has an effect then on the political system. And because of this, all these like coupled, connected, reinforcing feedback that can create this kind of cascade of action that can lead to kind of a, a tipping point. And I think like focusing on that piece of it, that that what you're doing there is like a social signal. Not it's not necessarily the emissions reductions themselves, you know, but it's that social signal of you know I am under about your values, right? And it's kind of saying, look, I am undertaking this action that's costly to me because I care about climate change for the following reasons, right? And I think other people should too. Um, and it's that effect that can potentially kind of leverage those individual actions into kind of much more uh, large scale. Um, changes and so we we kind of show that like the model has this has this potential in it. Um, once we parameterize the model to like look at something like more you know what we think might be a more realistic um, set of parameters, it turns out that those states of the model where individual action is like really key in tipping the whole system into this like sustainable state is actually quite. Um, it's not so common. <laughs> so it turned out like when we actually like do our real model runs about what we you know think, how, how we think things might evolve, it's not so important. But I think, you know, some of this debate comes from people's intuitions about um, that social signaling value um, and that, you know, it is real and it, it can drop out of the, the model in certain states. Yeah. Yeah, no, super, super interesting. And I think um, just to kind of get into, you know, some of the, some of the other results, um, um, or insights that we might get out, out of the model. Um, well, maybe maybe there's a kind of a top line thing and then we can get into the details. So one top line thing that I took is, again, I'm gonna kind of read a, 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 a sentence and then mm -hmm. we can unpack it a little bit. It goes something like this, or it goes exactly like this. This is the quote. Our parameterized model implies a high likelihood of accelerating emissions reductions over the 21st century, moving the world decisively away from a no policy business as usual baseline, which I believe as economists speak for, you know, this, there's hope. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and so maybe you could, we just say a little bit about that finding and that, and how you kind of come to it. And then, um, and then I think we can move into some, some more details about the, the relationship of these different uh, outputs and scenarios and, and so mm -hmm. on. Yeah, so, so, you know, you're right that that is, you know, really one of the, the headline conclusions of, you know, our, our whole exercise here. And that, um, so the, the, how we get to that point is we, we, we start with this model that has a lot of potential dynamics in it, you know, that can give rise to a lot, you know, there's a lot of potential behavior. And then we, we do some exercises to try and constrain some of the parameter sets. Um, and that, there's two main things. So one is that we, we use kind of 
evidence uh, on the current uh, distribution of opinions on climate policy. And so that comes from some Pew surveys um, from mostly from kind of US, OECD kind of set of countries. Um, and that's a kind of key starting place for our model. Um, and then we also do some exercises where we, we kind of um, run the model um, in kind of, you know, historic mode. So looking at kind of the last decade, and we probabilistically constrain some of the parameters based on how the output from the model matches what actually happened. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that helps us rein in, to some extent, the parameters. And in particular, we're able to do that uh, in parts of the like the system representing the political component, very importantly, in some of the, uh, the system representing the energy system um, and other other parts of the model are like less well constrained. Um, but we take this probabilistically and then we run the model like a hundred thousand times sampling over these uncertain uh, kind of parameter spaces. Um, and then we take, we look at what the trajectories of emissions look like under those hundred thousand runs. Um, and that's, and we find that in a large fraction of them, we see this kind of accelerating climate policy and um, dropping emissions so that in our kind of central case, um, what we call the modal pathway, you get to um, global net zero emissions. Well, zero emissions, we don't have negative emissions by about 2080 to 2090. Um, and so that is not a kind of quite a two degree consistent pathway, but it's also not far off from it. Um, and so that would get you to something kind of um, close to above, you know, about 2.3 degrees by 2100. Yes, and another point that you make in the paper is this is like roughly consistent with actually the um, policy commitments that are kind of mm-hmm. on the books um, that we get out of the, the Paris Accord and the um, pledges that that have been have arisen out of that. And then obviously, you know, there's been some talk of maybe adding later out into the century or at some point when we develop the technology, some kind of negative emissions mm-hmm. to keep us below two degrees. Mm-hmm. So that's pretty interesting because you didn't plunk in those policies; mm-hmm. they actually came out of your model. Yeah, that was it was very exciting when we <laughs> discovered that um, because it is quite surprising, right, that, you know, we don't there, there's nothing about these policy um, commitments in our model, right, because, you know, policy is just arriving as an output from the model. Um, and yet our modal pathway looks very much like what um, the um, uh what the 2030, 2050 kind of emissions uh, commitments look like. And actually there was just a paper, uh, another paper in in Nature last week um, showing that these long-term net zero commitments that countries have made um, are largely consistent with a two-degree pathway. And so that's what we're kind of able, we seem to be able to capture at least some of those dynamics, you know, whether or not countries are actually going to meet that, those those long term commitments, like you know, you know, we can't say, but you know, our model suggests that they might not be far off from it. Yeah, yeah, no, that that is, you know, that is that is good news, and certainly good news for a model when you can kind of put in, um, you know, the inputs on one side, and then you get outputs that actually match um, something that looks like the real world, which is pretty. Uh, I could imagine was pretty exciting. Um, Kind of on the other side, uh, the you know, there's always there's always some bad news whenever you do climate modeling, right? There there was, you know, there were some model runs where you had higher um, temperature change um, popping out, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, something more closer to you know three to four degrees, and um, and it's interesting to I think consider the the model features that were associated with you know kind of more or less temperature change, and so I'll just um, read off some of these that, that struck me. So in the, in the kind of bad world, uh, what leads to the bad world in some sense is things like, um, well, what you write here is high network homophily. So what that means is that people are essentially separated into polarized camps. And so the people who like care about climate change and do, um, take, efforts to address climate change, that that message doesn't spread very effectively through social Mm -hmm. networks because the social networks are essentially fractured amongst people who think alike. Uh, High social norm effects. So people are strongly affected by the people who they're around, but they're around people who they tend to agree with. Um, Political systems that have a bias towards the status quo. 
couple others that I think is quite interesting um, also is high, we write high biased assimilate, assimilation. So what this means is that people, um, and there's some evidence that this is the case, when there are um, severe weather events or other things like that, um, people uh, view those things through a partisan lens. So people who believe in climate change or in the US are Democrats, they'll say, oh, there's wildfires, that's because of climate change. Other people who aren't big fans of the idea of climate change or um, consider themselves Republicans might look at the same thing and say, no, that's because we haven't like managed our forests properly. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and then the shifting baselines issue, right? Which is, mm -hmm. that's kind of our frog in water uh, example, right? Where if we're just comparing temperature to the last, you know, five to 10 years, um, it doesn't really look like it's changed all that much, right? Whereas if you look over longer time horizons, then it does look like it's changed quite a bit. And the reality is that humans tend to update their views uh, pretty rapidly. They tend to adapt, which generally is actually probably a good thing about us, but um, it makes it very difficult for people to see long-term trends. So maybe we could just talk about some of those, those, mm -hmm. those factors and how they relate to the, um, to the model to then generate these outcomes of uh, more pessimistic climate scenarios. Yeah, so so kind of broadly speaking, you know, uh, what our model is doing is, you know, it's taking in evidence, which is coming from these, these pure opinion surveys that there is fairly already um, across the OECD kind of fairly widespread support in general for climate policies. And that um, and that's kind of a starting point. And so then you have to kind of, in order to get into these like bad states of the world, you have to kind of explain that there needs to be reasons why that doesn't translate into kind of climate policy. And broadly speaking, uh, broadly, so there's several reasons why that's the case. So one reason is that um, there's these kind of social set of reasons, which is you have the fractured social system um, where, you know, it's that, you know, we're just going to, this, this, distribution of opinion is just going to kind of stick in place. Um, and you're not going to get this, like, what the model would otherwise want to do, which is this kind of broad, like, transmission of support for climate policy as it spreads through the population. There are another set of reasons to do with responsiveness of the political system. And so um, there's, um, this is, if you know, if you have broad support for climate policy, but you have a fairly unresponsive political system where that just doesn't matter in terms of like collective action. Um, that's another reason why you could, you know, end up in uh, a world with, you know, not, not very uh, ambitious climate policy. And then there's another set of reasons to do with the feedback um, of cognition, right? So even, even if you're not persuaded by people in your social network, right, there's a pathway uh, in the model where you could just directly observe climate change, right? And so if you, and it turns out if if you allow that to happen with no, no kind of limitations on people's cognition, um, then basically everyone supports climate policy like right away <laughs> because mm -hmm. the, evi the evidence of climate change, well, not, you know, uh, certainly going forward is like very, very high. But we know or we think that there's probably quite a lot of limits to uh, how people are able to perceive climate change given their observations of weather. And that includes things like shifting baselines, which I've done some work on before using, using Twitter data where we suggested that people you know, adjust their sense of normal on about a five-year basis. And like the signal of climate change is not very high on that on that time frame. Uh, and then you couple that with this this bias assimilation effect too. And, and you you can get a situation where um, people as you know, people are not able to distinguish the climate change signals at all um, given given their observations. And then there's one final reason for why you might you might end up in these the worst states of the world, and that's to do with the energy system. And if you end up in a world where you just get really unlucky in terms of the evolution of energy technologies and they just don't keep evolving the way they have and like you um they 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 stay really expensive and so even though maybe your climate policy is quite ambitious it's actually just not doing much in the energy system that's another reason you can get um these you know draws on this the the higher end of warming um and so we kind of can distinguish those pathways to some extent um by looking at you know the combination of model parameters that produces dip different combinations of um climate policy and emissions over the 21st century. Yeah. You know, it's, you know, for, for what it's worth, I'm, I'm probably more optimistic about the 
the technological side than the mm-hmm. social side. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> um, um, I think we have reason to be in a sense, right? If we if we just look at the last you know couple of decades, the technology has um, come along quite quite nicely. Our politics have not come along nearly as nicely. Um, I'm uh, uh, so I'm curious about some other um, what, what what you think of some other potential. Uh, feedback effects, and 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 then curious also if you just if you if where the future um, uh, kind of work on this uh, on this model and this approach is going to take you. So some of the um, the feedbacks that I've uh, written a little about a little bit about in this area are um, the ways that the the climate system or changes in the climate system could kind of do harm to our ability to carry out political mm-hmm. change. Yep. So in I think, you know, one of the things that's interesting about the the model that you guys have is it's pretty optimistic in the sense that um, as the climate starts to get, you know, as climate damages become apparent, that generally speaking, um, through mechanisms that you guys identify, leads people to care more about climate change, which is pretty sensible <laughs> um, thing, right? Is that people see something bad happening in the world, they care more about it. The, the concern that... Um, that I've, I've raised with a, with a co-author, Peter Howard, is you know this idea that in order to address climate change, you need to have a fairly high degree of cooperation in society, um, because again, no individual actor, including any individual country, can really uh, substantially change the em- global emissions pathway. And so, there's huge free rider problems, and those aren't going anywhere. There's always going to be free rider problems. Um, and so some form of cooperation is necessary. And the concern is that climate damages um, undermine the conditions that are necessary for that kind of cooperation, um, you know, by just uh, putting pressure on societies, um, mass, mass uh, immigration, uh, economic costs, uh, social dislocation, you know, all the harms that are associated with climate change, those just decrease the capacity of the state to do, you know, big projects and decrease the ability for um, international, uh, for international cooperation or the functioning of international institutions. I'm, I'm curious whether you guys contemplated that kind of downer of a, of a, of a feedback and, uh, or if it sounds kind of roughly plausible or something that could be potentially incorporated into the model. Yeah, it's definitely something um, I uh, was thinking about. Um, I think, we, I, I, I definitely think it's true, right, that, you know, if you think of what the the project on climate uh, mitigation, like certainly maybe I have my economist hat on, but, we, you know, we would describe it as like providing a global public good, right? Right. And that's really hard. <laughs> um, yeah. And, uh, you know, what, you know, nation states are more used to is providing like public good for their citizens, right? Which you might think of that as various types of adaptation, public adaptation expenditures. Um, And I think like thinking about, you know, we definitely talked about possible models where you, I think if you had that feedback in, you could, you would get this kind of bifurcation potentially where you end up in this like negative uh, feedback loop where, um, well, sorry, you end up in a bad feedback loop, right. which is a reinforcing feedback loop where climate damages lessen the state capacity to undertake mitigation that leads to more climate change damages. Um, I think, you know, I think it's true. I think, you know, the working group and the effort that gave rise to this paper, we were interested in this question of, of tipping points in the social system, right? So we were looking we were tending to, I think, look for examples of reinforcing feedbacks in the like positive direction. Mm-hmm. And I think definitely in a, a next extension uh, for the model would be to look at some of these more um, less good examples of tipping points. And I think that that is definitely one of them, this idea that you could get trapped in this like constant adaptation, constantly responding to climate change mm-hmm. impacts rather than uh, lessening the ability to do these other types of changes. I think the other, you know, feedback that we don't have in the model right now is a kind of negative public reaction to changing energy prices. And that's, mm-hmm. you know, we know that's true. Like we're seeing it right now. Um, right. Um, I think, and I would probably incorporate that as some type of, you know, reaction against rapid changes in energy, right? So you, you can increase energy prices, but if you do it through a carbon tax, but if you do it very quickly, uh, 
there's a negative response to that, right? That diminishes support for climate policy. And that would, you know, that would change, that would definitely change our results. <laughs> um, and so I think some of that, um, you know, that's all kind of work to be done um, in as we kind of flesh out some of the richness, I think, of, of what's, what's in this type of model. Yeah, great. Yeah, I look forward to look forward to future future iterations. I and mean, one of the things that you you mentioned there, which is another really interesting feature of this project, and uh, something that we've kind of returned to on this podcast a few times in the past, which is this is highly interdisciplinary work. And actually, in the paper, you even talk about like there was a four day interdisciplinary workshop. Mm-hmm. That's where we kind of identified the the feedbacks that we were interested in, which is very cool. Um, I think because uh, that's kind of how the real world works. You have these workshops, and you get ideas and you exchange, um, you know, you exchange thoughts and then, and that's how you kind of, um, you know, build these things. So maybe you could just tell us a little bit about that, the workshop, the idea for the workshop, you know, the kinds of folks who were there and what the value was of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, yeah. It, so it came out of this, um, um, a interdisciplinary working group funded by Sasink, um, Social Environmental Synthesis Center, I, I want to say, um, in Annapolis. And um, it was um, Brian Beckage and Katie Lacasse and Lou Gross had kind of, uh, who had some of the co-authors in the paper had been involved in a previous version of the working group. And this was like the second iteration of it. And um, so we, it's an interesting mixture of, of, of disciplines as several ecologists. Um, there was some uh, system dynamics specialists. Um, this, this style of modeling is, you know, um, often called kind of systems dynamics, like focused on feedback loops and, and changes mm-hmm. over time. Um, and so that's definitely like a, an important like piece of the modeling. And I think, and then Katie, is, uh, Katie Lacasse is a, a, a psychologist um, and, you know, like there are disciplines missing from that. <laughs> and so some of that was like us reading um, a lot into, into those literatures. Um, and, but it is, I think it's hard to get these things to always work well. And I think here there was definitely a focus early on, on quantitative modeling. And so kind of mm-hmm. everyone was like on the same page about that um, and kind of willing to make the kind of necessary simplifications and so on. Um that, that come with trying to put very rich qualitative insights from some of these disciplines into a, a rather um, dry uh, computational model in you know, very, very like simple functional forms. Um, but kind of people recognize that, that that was the end goal of this project ultimate, ultimately. Um, and because of that, we, we could, you know, kind of came up with some, some interesting work. I think next, you know, we would like to have, you know, more disciplines in particularly recognizing, I think, political science um, and law um, uh, as being really critical to some of these, the the way in which, you know, collective action emerges um, from the space. I think in general, this, this, this socio-ecology modeling, which is this, you know, that's, there's been a lot of that within ecology, right? So ecologists are used to thinking of how do species interact with their environment and how do the environment then shape the species evolution? And like the extension of that then to like humans is a natural one. Uh, and so you've seen some of these t- this type of modeling work in, um, in kind of coming out of ecologists. And so I think that's, you know, why you see, you know, that's why we have like ecologists involved uh, on this paper. Um, but I think bringing in more of like specialists within um, within the social sciences that are interested in engaging um, in this type of work, it's, I think it'll like, you know, would, would be really valuable. Yeah, no, it's, I mean, it's fantastic though, what you've done so far just to, to bring these disciplines together. And again, you know, um, as you noted, you know, at the end of the day for uh, an exercise like this, stuff has to get translated into quantitative terms that can be put into a model that can generate, that they can interact with each other and generate outcomes. And so that can always be a challenge to to integrate some of these more qualitative disciplines. Um, folks can get uncomfortable with making assumptions mm-hmm. about like what the coefficient is going to be <laughs> when you parameterize a model. But, um, but I do think that that is uh, yeah, no, it's, not, it's admirable. Not, ju- not, not just a coefficient, but I think sometimes people can get very hung up on the terminology and mm. you could, you get, you get into debates about ra- what I would call like semantic debates that are not mm. particularly substantive. 
um, because, you know, semantics are important in, in some of these disciplines. Um, but when you start translating these ideas into numbers, like a lot of it, you know, really these, these, these nuances, these distinctions start breaking down. Um, and you have to be willing to like, let go of some of that, um, and kind of, um, you know, recognize that, oh, what, what you call this and what I call this are, you know, really when we actually try and like put it into a model like that's a kind of functioning as the same thing. And we just have to like live with that and like, like let go of some of these, um, more semantic distinctions. Um, right. and that, you know, it takes a certain kind of flexibility of mindset, I think for, for, for people to be able to do that. Yeah. But that's also a useful intellectual exercise mm-hmm. in its own is to, mm-hmm. you know, when we kind of nail this out and say, yep. actually, you know, we're talking about the same thing yep. yeah, <laughs> when, exactly. it, when it comes down mm-hmm. to it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, you know, that actually takes a, a back us back, I think a little bit to that initial there, that point that I made earlier about the different kind of philosophical underpinnings mm-hmm. of these different approaches. Cause you know, you mentioned, um, you know, kind of ecology and the way that, you know, we can, we could think of, you know, ecosystems and species and ecosystems just kind of all interacting with each other within a single kind of model. And there's no reason in principle not to think about, well, at least in one worldview, there's no reason Mm -hmm. in principle Mm -hmm. not to just think of humans exactly the same way that we're conditioned by our environment. We then interact with our environment and have effects on that environment and that feeds back to us. And it's kind of a, you know, what you have is almost like a fully causal model of the human climate system. Now, again, you know, as you note, it's not like comprehensive and complete and whatever else. I mean, you, you're making a rough cut and, and, and uh, you know, an attempt to include what you think are the important features. But broadly speaking, the underlying idea is that, you know, we're acted on by causal forces. We have characteristics um, that then, you know, can change over time or not. Um, but, you know, that we're kind of embedded in this dynamic, mm-hmm. essentially, mm-hmm. that is kind of fully cl- enclosed mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, from a causal perspective. Mm-hmm. Whereas under like the Nordhaus model, you know, what you might say, uh, one way to interpret that is we have a choice. You know, there's no mm-hmm. social decision maker in reality, but we ask this question, which is if I were a social decision maker, what would be the right thing to do? It's kind of a utilitarian mm-hmm. worldview that says, well, this is really what social decision makers or the people who are best positions to best position to make social policy ought to do because it maximizes, you know, social, well, social welfare, social well-being. Mm-hmm. And then you could think of the, um, the IPCC world as being a little bit more agnostic in terms of the ethical framework that it's using, right? There's not, it's not clear that they're trying to maximize social welfare. It's not really clear what their utility function is exactly, but basically they're saying we have a choice. We can choose emissions pathway A, B, C, or D. What kind of world do we want to live in? And we have Mm -hmm. to decide that collectively. Mm -hmm. Um, I think it's very interesting. So I I, I guess um, I would just be curious about your thoughts. Is that something that you that you all considered um, when thinking about the, your model and how it differed from the other models? Or was this, you know, is this a, a little bit of a, f- a philosopher's point that, that wasn't really front of mind? No, it's definitely, I mean, it's definitely something, I think your typology is exactly accurate there. Um, and it's definitely something that certainly I was thinking about. Um, and in particular, it came up when I was kind of communicating about this paper, I was talking to people about it. And people would say, well, what does it mean about what we can do? <laughs> and it's like, well, it's kind of not that type of model. <laughs> right. It's, it's a, it's very much a descriptive, not a normative model, right? It's kind of, it's telling you like, well, if this is, you know, the type of world we live in, then this is what, you know, emissions are likely to be. And if this is the type of world we live in, then this is what emissions are likely to be. And in that sense, it is very, like the goal of the modeling exercise is understanding and descriptive primarily and not necessarily prescriptive or normative uh, kind of in its intent. Um, and that makes it different, I think, than some of these, you know, the goals of these other modeling exercises that do see their role as kind of giving advice, say, to some imagined decision maker. But, you know, the problem is that like this, the world dis- global decision maker kind of doesn't exist for these complex, wicked problems mm-hmm. like climate change is one example. And I think, you know, I think it does, you know, in that sense, what this is doing is pointing to the importance, like if you take the science of sustainability and the science of social ecological systems seriously, then the driving, like, determinant of how these natural systems evolve over the 21st century is going to be people, like people's collective decisions. And you need, like, you can't just exclude that from 
your understanding of the system. Like you're kind of like taking the, the most important driver and you're explicitly saying, oh no, we don't do that. We don't model that. And to me, that's just very unsatisfying as, as a scientific exercise. Um, and so, and I think, I, I think there is echoes. I would say there's echoes here of, of work like Ellen Ostrom um, mm. in the sense that, you know, she studied scientifically the emergence of like behaviors that, you know, kind of these collective mm. decisions around common pool resource management, right? And, you know, a lot of her work was looking at, you know, under what situations do you see this arise and under what situations do you not? And it was this descriptive exercise and she was very, she tended to be quite averse to saying, you know, like, oh, well, here's what we can do to manage this type of resource better. It was, her work was tended not to be particularly uh, prescriptive in that sense. And I think you can see this in the same vein in the sense of like what we're trying to do is we're trying to understand and predict and project these the emergence of collective action uh, around you know governance of various types of environmental commons um, in order to better understand both the processes that give rise to that type of governance as well as the behavior of the you know of what the trajectory of those systems will look like over time. Yeah, yeah, no, that's really that's interesting. An interesting connection to to Ostrom's work that that does make a lot of sense. One uh, one feedback that just just occurred to me that uh, maybe you could include in uh, in future iterations is the feedback effect of your model okay. into the policy process. Right? Is that <laughs> and now now it's out? It's people can see it, and then you know that that it, if people change their behavior on the basis mm -hmm. of your paper, that itself is a kind of feedback effect. Yeah, um, uh, <laughs> maybe a little hard to incorporate into the model, but. Um, but but kind of fun to, to contemplate. Mm -hmm. So so one uh, maybe final question for you is um, again with this predictive enter enterprise and kind of with the state of modeling. Obviously, you're not saying we know what the world's going to look like, right? You're saying look, there's some probability distributions, and we think these are some of the important uh, features of the world that will um, bear on whether we find ourselves at you know um, uh, two degrees or three degrees or three and a half degrees. Um, by the century's end. And so, um, again, as, as someone who's, you know, been in the weeds of the model and seen the, the runs and done the analysis, one of the things I would be very interested to hear from you is, you know, what are the things that we should be looking for over the next 10 years? Like, what are the features of the social world or the technological world that, um, that we that we want to know about that you know if if x if we observe x then this should give us hope that we are going to stay within a reasonable temperature change or if we see y then um, you know uh, it's time to move to Canada um, mm -hmm. you know what what are the the things that we should be looking for. Um, you know, is it the next midterm elections or is it, you know, what, you know, is it, um, uh, like something in, you know, in terms of polariz if polarization, political polarization, uh, continues the same, uh, along the same track, like what are the things, is it just public opinion? Yeah. What are the things that we should be looking for over the next five to 10 years that will be a signal about what world we're most likely to find our, ourselves in? Yeah, I think I'm probably going to reveal my economist ta <laughs> economist background here, uh, and I would say pr uh, probably um, something along the lines of carbon pricing, <laughs> um, mm -hmm. because one of the common features, uh, near term features of you know these worlds that look more optimistic, is you see quite rapid uh, increase in the stringency of climate policy, where that's measured in terms of um, some kind of aggregate carbon pricing measure and. Um, I think if you, you know, kind of over the next few years, if, you know, we're starting to see that, like the, you know, Europeans' carbon price is going up rapidly, um, same in California, like, um, and so, and, and but it's not just carbon pricing, right? It's also um, to the extent we have more ambitious, you know, non-pricing climate goals like renewable portfolio standards or other types of say efficiency regulations that are that are binding at a certain cost right that's kind of uh, that's kind of all rolled into that measure of, of the kind of equivalent the carbon tax equivalent um and so i think if you 
and this is globally, right? So I think in, Americans tend to concentrate very much on like what's happening at the federal mm-hmm. level in the U.S. But, you know, we should recognize that, you know, emissions in the U.S. and, you know, not unrelated to what happens like everywhere else because there are these spillover effects via via markets um, and technology spillovers and things like that. And so, um, yeah, I would I would definitely be keeping an eye on that um, over the next uh, ten or so years, I guess, to see if to see to what extent our uh, our model projections are, are kind of being borne out. Yeah, yeah, it's really interesting. As a, it's, I mean, in a way that we could probably just keep our eye on emissions. Then is that you know under the more optimistic scenario? Well, that's that's a slow that has a slower response, right? And that also and that also depends more on the you have these this question about what emissions technologies do over mm-hmm. time. But mm-hmm. I think you can really distinguish, you know, are you in this mostly this set of more positive type social political system worlds or not, um, based on what happened to the carbon price in the fairly near term. Okay. Well all the all the more reason for us to hope for a, a, a stringent carbon price. Not only will it actually generate the outcome, but it will predict that we'll be in a good uh, world as well. So, okay. Well, very good, uh, Fran. Thanks so much for chatting with me today. This was a super fun and informative conversation. Thank you so much for the for the great questions. <laughs>